Welcome to the 251st episode of the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and your co-host, Kevin Tofel. And we have a stellar show for you today. We're going to wrap up our CES experience, talking about uh, broad trends, some different types of tech, including tech for boomers, tech for, well, boards, and <laughs> light switches, some health stuff, and some local AI stuff. Plus, we're going to talk about the smart things transition, what you need to know. I've got an acquisition in the industrial IoT space, and we have a crazy science story just for fun. Our guest this week is actually a multitude of people that I interviewed at CES about the connected home over IP standard. So you're going to be hearing a bunch of interviews. I'm going to apologize right now. These are not done in studio. They're done live on the floor. So there is going to be some background noise in some of them. But good interview. You're going to learn a lot. So before we talk about Chip, we're also going to hear from one of our sponsors, Machine Q, talking about how companies are deploying Machine Q's infrastructure product and its platform product. So all this and more awaits you. But first, a message from another one of our sponsors. This week's sponsor is IoT World. Y'all, you are invited to North America's largest IoT event, IoT World, which is the intersection of industries and IoT technologies. This event is happening April 6th through 9th at the San Jose Convention Center in Silicon Valley. It, they are celebrating their seventh anniversary. IoT World is going to welcome over 12,500 IoT professionals, 400 speakers, and 400 exhibitors and startups at the event. You're going to be able to connect with strategists, technologists, and implementers to put IoT, AI, 5G, and Edge into action across key industry verticals. There are free expo passes available so you can see some of those exhibitors. To learn more and register to attend, visit iotworldevent.com. Okay, Kevin. It's a okay. week out. From CES, we are all healed from our CES flus and foot ailments. I don't know. I didn't have a foot ailment. I just, uh, I was tired. My feet yeah, were tired. Minor, minor back and calf soreness, but I'm, I'm fine now. There I'm fine now. This was a very different CES. You could see how the exhibitors have changed. The focus of them have changed based on the booths themselves. Yeah. You know, there's a lot that has been written about how, oh, tech is going to the mainstream and the tech players are not just like every company is a tech company. The tech players aren't the only game in town anymore. And this is very true at CES. Years past, what happened, Kevin? You've been going the longest. I'll give you the the big perspective. <laughs> only since 2005. Ugh. You used to walk into Central Hall in the Las Vegas Convention Center and you would just be, you'd have Intel's massive booth in your face. There was no way around it to get to the show floor. You had to maneuver past Intel's booth. And then across from Intel's booth was always Microsoft. And behind Intel's booth was Qualcomm. These were all big, big floor areas. Now, we know Microsoft left CES, oh, I'll say three, four years ago at least. Uh, Hisense has that big booth area now. But walking in this year... I was waiting for all the blue of Intel and the Intel Inside stickers, and I didn't see them because there was another vendor there. And I don't even recall who it was. It wasn't one that was very... 
prominent here in the US. And I'm like, well, that's interesting. And then I walked past it and Qualcomm's big, massive booth wasn't behind where Intel's usually is either. They were at the show, but they were spread out and had smaller booths. They were more focused on the connected car area in North Hall. Yeah, this was what surprised me is going... And we talked about this a little last week was the idea that the convention center, we're like, why are we even here? But yeah, I went into North Hall and I saw Qualcomm's booth and I was like, huh, this must be their car specific booth. But that was them. And it was, it was all automotive technology. They showed off a lot of automotive stuff in their press event that was held as well. And I just thought that was, I mean, cars are consumer tech. The North Hall and the car tech has really expanded in the last few years, but the chip guys, they're, this isn't their show anymore. They're, no, uh, you know, and moving over, if you move over to the central hall, we still have some of the big booths like LG, Samsung. Those are still huge and those are less focused now on TVs. They still are, but now right. all of them have these big, huge connected kitchen areas where they're showing off that stuff. They usually have a whole dedicated smart home section. And then when you go away from the convention center, the SANS is really where it's at. It's it's much mm-hmm. more interesting technology. You've got the smart home, you've got healthcare, you've got wearables. Yeah, it's a big change. And it's one, if you, if you don't go every year, you probably wouldn't know, but it's worth noting because we have been going and we've seen this shift. In fact, the Samsung booth used to be like all their phones and tablets and TVs And now the biggest part of it, and it's a big booth to begin with, the biggest part of it is all devoted to the smart home and the smart things ecosystem, which we're going to talk a little bit more about later. It's eye-opening when you actually see that happen over time. Yeah. So I know we say this all the time, but hey, every company is now a tech company and tech is moving into more things, which has big implications. But we saw that at CES. Mm -hmm. All right. We're going to talk about a lot of other things from CES, including, Kevin, you want to talk about boomer tech? (laughs) Okay, boomer. Okay, boomer, yes. Um, I am not a boomer. uh, I'm close, but I'm not a boomer. However, and we talked about this on the last show from CES, where we had visited the AARP Innovation Labs area, among the many other areas, and we saw the, uh, the Ember wearable to help either increase or decrease your perceived temperature by five degrees or so. So if you're feeling chilly and everybody else is fine, and instead of, you know, turning up the heat, you place this on there and these thermal waves basically, would you say it's fair to say they trick your brain into feeling warmer? Sure. That is what it's doing. But I mean, and historically, we've tricked our brain. So they do it by cooling you at a single pulse point, but then they're also using And this is where it gets a little dicey. I'm going to be real, y'all. It works. We tried it. But it's either magnetic waves or some sort of waves to the amygdala of your brain or some temperature regulating portion of your brain. I don't really know. Whatever it is, it does work. <laughs> we can vouch for that. And we're we're pretty sure it doesn't fry your brain, but we're, you know, not 100% sure. Yeah. Long-term use, I can't speak to, but five minutes at the booth, I, I'm fine. Yeah, so this is good for hot flashes. Woohoo! It's not happening for me yet, but one day it will, and by golly, I might buy this $300 device for that. And my wife is actually also interested. She's like, get a review unit. I would like to try this. So we will see. That could be applied to any individual, obviously, but there was a 
growing trend of, I, I hate to call it boomer tech, but I'll say helping people age gracefully. Yes, there was a connected belt. Did you see the, the welt? The welt? I did not see the welt. Yes, the welt belt, which actually... <laughs> it's made from a pelt. <laughs> it is. It's not, but it tracks your steps and it also is designed to detect falls by analyzing Mm. your gait. So it's actually trying to alert you before you fall, which, okay. So that was something I saw that I thought was really interesting, Mm -hmm. especially as someone who falls. Yeah. Well, along the same lines, we caught some information on the smart walking stick also at the Innovation Labs booth. This actually won a a contest. The person who created it got a free trip to CES. It's not a product you can buy, but if you have a 3D printer or access to one and you want to download the code and the schematics for this, it's just a little add-on accessory for a standard cane. And it too has fall detection, but it also adds support for digital music playback, uh, smart home control. And if you do fall down, it can alert people through text or WhatsApp, which I thought was kind of neat. Totally neat. Yes. So lots of tech there for fall detection, motion detection. Actually, one of the cooler devices, and this isn't boomer tech, but I'm going to throw it in there, was the Wythings scan watch. Mm-hmm. This is a beautiful watch. It will be out later this year. They say second quarter. It's going to cost between 250 and $300. And it detects all kinds of things throughout your heart, like AFib, that sort of thing. It's a medical grade device, but it also does things with your sleep. So it detects things like sleep apnea. And I thought that was kind of worthwhile. I mean, I know that I snore and my husband hates it. Sorry, honey. This isn't going to stop that, but this will tell you if your snoring is medically relevant or not. I had to actually do like a sleep study to determine that mine was not. So I thought this was pretty cool, very interesting tech, medical grade, and crammed into a relatively inexpensive device. Right. Those prices are based on the size of the watch, the watch face being 38 millimeters or 42 millimeters. So it's 250 for the smaller one, 299 for the larger one. Yeah. I mean, obviously some people are going to say, oh, well, you know, the Apple watch has the ECG and all, and this this has the same. It's nice to see other options though, because not everybody wants an Apple watch or needs an Apple watch and everything that it brings, right? So getting these sensors into more wearable devices at different price points and different ecosystems, I think is a very good thing. Yeah. And the watch has a battery life for 30 days on a single charge. So dang, yeah, you guys. Yeah. Well, that's that's why things thing, if you will. It's an analog watch with a very small screen. So it's not a traditional smartwatch where it's like all display. There's no touch screen. Instead, it's, it's a traditional analog watch, but has this small screen and sensors to give you some additional information. So pretty cool. Any other boomer tech you want to talk about? You know, I thought you were going to try this one device, and it's, again, not specific to Boomer Tech, but it, it I could see that being the main market for it. That was the, I'll call it a tricorder of sorts, um, the MouthLab mobile monitoring system, which looks like a very, I'll call it a thick handled uh, toothbrush is what it looks like, but it has a, a mouthpiece on it that you basically put this in your mouth and you just breathe into it for 30 seconds. And based on the data it gathers from sensors, reading breath, saliva, mucous membranes, blood vessels, it gets 10 health parameters in 30 seconds. That's a lot. 
It is a lot. I mean, it's the traditional heart rate, heart variability, blood pressure, but also blood oxygen saturation. It's an ECG, your temperature, uh, respiratory functions, and more. And the data can be sent to your healthcare provider. They are waiting for FDA certification. I think they said May or June is what they're hoping for. Okay. Yeah. The, the target price is like $120. Yeah. That's pretty cool. That's crazy. Yeah. Crazy. Pretty cool. Same thing. So yes, no, this, and this was a company called Adair, A-D-A-I-R, in case you're curious and want to look it up. Okay. So we've talked about boomers. We've talked about booths. Let's talk about boards. Oh my goodness. We have (laughs) new boards, some of which came out at CES, some of which we're just kind of clumping in here. At CES, Arduino announced a new line of boards for the industrial environment. The first one is called the Portena H7. The line of hardware is going to be called Portena. And basically, this is a cheap IoT hardware platform. So they're going to have an authentication chip. They're going to have Wi-Fi, BLE, LTE, and narrowband IoT options. It's going to have a 32-bit ARM microcontroller. So still in the MCU, this is not like a super power board. It's going to run ARM Embed OS, and it will support Arduino, Python, and JavaScript. And this is big because usually when you're working with Arduino, you're only working with Arduino. So this lets app developers kind of come down into the hardware world. It does. Um, The board is available for pre-orders now for $99.90. I think it's coming out in February. Yeah, so soon. Yeah, super soon. It's kind of awesome. I mean, like I look at this and we talk about a variety of different boards. And I feel like if you've got $99, you can go crazy places. There's the Jetson Nano if you want to do GPU level machine learning at the edge. There's Google's Coral options. They've got some development boards for that. Now you've got this for like more hardware focused interactions. It's just a rich ecosystem in the cheaper range. (laughs) (laughs) Friend of the show, Alistair Allen, who is, I don't know what to say. He's just a smart dude who writes about hardware. And I think he's great. He wrote about the Seed Studio W600 board that's running MicroPython for only $2. And he wrote about this, and he's basically comparing it to the ESP8266, which is... Everywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> it's it's the higher-grade version of the ESP32. It has Wi-Fi. This new board, which is the W600 Pico from Wemos, it comes preloaded with MicroPython firmware. And this lets you control more aspects of the chip. It's got a Cortex-M3, so in one megabyte of flash, and Wi-Fi support. So this isn't as fancy as all the other boards, but you can build quite a bit with this. And Mm -hmm. the fact that it's two bucks means you can buy it and play around with it and see if you want to build something. A lot of people use stuff like this for prototyping. I've I've actually seen products out on the market. My smart dry actually has an ESP 82 to 66, which you guys may remember, but mm, three months ago, they found a pretty serious security flaw in that. Yeah. So we don't know about the Wemos. I'm sure people are hacking it as we speak, but you know, this is just an interesting alternative. It's such a small little thing, too. 33 by 20 millimeters. It's such a wee board. It's a wee little chip. 
And then the other board that might pique your interest is the Hi-5-1 Rev-B. And this is a board that is running the RISC-V instruction set. RISC-V is the open source instruction set. We've talked about it a bit on the show. This is an alternative to ARM has their own instruction set, and Intel has their x86 instruction set. So what's happened is the RISC-V was created at Berkeley probably around 20, I think it was 2010 or 2012. And now there's a whole ecosystem of people building chips based on RISC-V. And this board, which you can buy for $60, is your chance as a developer to start playing with the RISC-V instruction set. And I saw it at CES and I was very excited. The first version has been out for about a month. You can pre-order the Rev-B version. But I don't know. This is, and, and it has Wi-Fi. So I don't know what to say. It's, it's pretty cool. Well, I'm actually looking at it because I use the AVR instruction set for machine language programming with Arduino. And it would be interesting to see the differences. Yeah. And the Hi-5-1 was an Arduino-compatible RISC-V development kit. So that was the first one mm-hmm. that came out a long time ago. So this is the next version of it that came out one month ago. So I was a little, I was a little confusing there. And yeah, I don't know what else to say. It's just kind of cool. This board has both Wi-Fi and Bluetooth capabilities. Ha ha, because it has a single core SP ESP32 coprocessor. Ha ha. <laughs> They're everywhere, you guys. Anyway, so for those of you guys who are interested in hacking or playing around with these things, there's some three new exciting boards out there for you in the world at various price ranges. Now, back to crazy consumer tech for those of us who are like, Board schmords. Let's talk oh, about this is this is gonna be your favorite segment, I know. Let's talk about light switches. <laughs> <laughs> not just light switches, but really pretty light switches. Yeah, I didn't know how else to these are not any smarter, they're just pretty. So if you're really trying to sell someone on the smart home and they're a design focused person, we've got two options for you. I don't know how to say this name, but Kevin and I both walked by this booth and we we stopped and came we back. We just stopped. We're like double yeah. take. Iote. I O T TY Smart Home. And this is iotismarthome.com. Right now, they only have two kinds for sale. They have a black and a white glass-backed smart switch. And these are very beautiful. At CES, they were showing off, and I don't know when these are going to come out, but very pretty stone-based ones, different colored glass. Mm-hmm. So keep an eye on these guys if you are like thinking about, I don't know, doing a redesign or something like that. These are not going to get you, I don't know if they work with other platforms, things like that. They are Wi-Fi based. They do work with Madam A. They do work with Google. As you said, built-in Wi-Fi. You're right. They don't really add any more smarts over any, you know, crappy looking or cheap Wi-Fi switch, but they're, they're just amazing. It's all touch sensitive tempered glass and it's just super sleek and modern looking. And you can program it to do time based, like in the app, you can program it to turn on at a specific time. You can actually do commands different. You can program different commands with a tap. You can have them switch on at sunrise or sunset. There's geofencing capabilities and they also monitor energy consumption. So these are smart. They're just. Well, when you're paying $78 for each one, that's, you know, that, that's the difference there. It's because of the design. Yes. Well, I will tell you, they have a flash sale on right now. Don't know how long <laughs> it's going to last. It's buy one, get one. So if you want black or white, dang, they're just beautiful. 
Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, you guys. They're just lovely. And you can, 78 is a one gang. You can also buy a three gang. It's up to three gang. And the three gang is 128. So that's it. <laughs> I'm like, that's it, you guys. Oh, wait, no. There's others. There's other pretty light switches. Legrand, which actually sponsored the show a couple weeks ago. They had and were showing off their Adorn collection. Legrand has had their Radiant collection of light switches, which look like every other light switch on the market, for a while. But the Legrand Adorn collection of switches and outlets are special. (laughs) Okay. Again, it's hard to talk about this, but the outlets are my favorite thing. They actually Mm -hmm. pop in and you pop them out of your wall. So they're flush mounted plates to the wall. And then you pop the center and out comes an outlet. And it's pretty awesome. Three outlets. Three outlets. You can have many outlets. And then the switches, their Adorn switches are square glass. Again, they're glossy glass on a glass plate. And they're square and you just tap them and they're just beautiful. The switch is interesting, especially we'll hear more about paddles versus toggles in a little while with our voicemail. But that's kind of what it reminds me of. It's like a tall but thin paddle. So it's kind of like a in between a toggle and a switch. Yes. It's square. It has that. They have a dimmer option. They're just. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're beautiful. Okay. How many did you buy so far? I have not bought any. <laughs> I am not buying anything for my rental house until. Mm-hmm. We'll see about until- that. The time I one day I'm gonna have a house very soon, you guys. We'll we'll hear about my adventures in that. Okay. Other things at CES. I just wanted to I've seen this booth, I've been to this booth. You know, every year I stop by the mixed tile booth. They're a Chinese company. This year at CES, they were showing something I thought was pretty cool, which is they have a smart hub that controls all of their devices. They have something called Mixtile Edge and Link. And what it does is it it extends the smart home network and It also offers AI. So they do a lot of artificial intelligence. They basically have models that run at the edge. And they're promising that all of your private data will be processed and saved locally. Yay. And so I just thought that was worth mentioning. If you're really into security, Mixtile might be something you want to look at. That's about it. Because right now we don't have a lot of hubs that do that. Okay. That was pretty much... Most of the CES news. Anything that you care about, Kevin? No, I'm still looking at that Risk Five board. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right, we'll send Kevin a Risk Five board. That is not a problem. Okay, so I was watching a football game at a friend of mine's house, and he happens to work for the Spoon and <laughs> tests all kinds of smart kitchen gadgets. And you know how much I love smart kitchen gadgets, y'all. We ran into something called the Chime Connected Chai Maker. And this is a $300 device that makes chai. And I know, I know, you don't need this. But if you really like chai, which my daughter does, you know, it's a fun device to have. The most interesting thing I thought, though, about this device was if you have one, you can set your preferences in the app and via Bluetooth, it will share that if you walk into somebody's house with another connected chime. Hmm. Interesting. The nice thing is, if you want to use it, your personalized settings stay with you and then are transferred to that other chime, which... It's neat. It's neat. That's very neat. It's a nice use of Bluetooth. I liked it. And it's something I've kind of wanted for lots of 
connected home devices, right? I, I think it'd be neat to be able to share, you know, my my Spotify playlist if I walked in. And I guess I can by Bluetooth connecting to people's speakers, but that's kind of an effort. And this makes it very seamless. So go check that out if you're building a connected device and you have personalized settings that you think you might want to share with other people's connected devices. This isn't going to make sense on everything. Like, I don't want people coming in with their personalized settings for my air conditioning, but for their- Or the laundry. Or their laundry. But for their chai, sure. (laughs) Also, you know, if you want to buy a connected chai maker, go for it. 300 bucks. Okay. Now let's talk about smart things. On Wednesday, mm. the day we're recording the show, they are doing the smart things transition begins. This is the transition from the smart things classic app to a new app. We have done this in beta. A lot of people, this has been around for a while. If you want to do this, you have the option of not doing this. But well, but <laughs> it's kind of like the whole Nest and Google transition. You don't have to do it yet, but if you don't, you're going to lose out on some things. What are we going to lose out on, Kevin? If you stick with the Smart Things Classic app, which was the original mobile app for Smart Things, you will no longer be able to create new routines. You won't be able to edit or view old routines. And you cannot add, view, or manage either locks or your smart home monitor. In the- That's their security. Yes. So, yeah, it's kind of like they're forcing everybody at this point, I would say. Or yeah. If you love your pushing. existing automations and they're going to work for you, then great. And you're still going to be able to control those devices, but no new routines, nothing. You can't mess with what you've already got. Right. So don't change anything in your house ever again, and you'll be happy. Yeah. Okay. But. You also will have to upgrade to a Samsung account. A lot of us did that a couple of years ago, but if you haven't, because you were like, why do I need a Samsung account? Well, now is the time. You must yeah. do that. And, you know, they did build, thank you, a migration app to make it easy. I have not migrated. Actually, I well, migrated I, a long time ago. So I was going to say, I tried that last year and it was hit or miss for me. So hopefully that is a better experience. I will hope so. There are things that you're not going to be able to use. A lot of your custom device integrations and automations are going to work, but some of them are not going to work. And they really haven't shared too much about what is not going to work, which I'm kind of like, well, I would like to know that. They are not going to support features such as action delays that are over 60 minutes. They are not going to support certain cameras, and I'm not sure what those cameras are going to be. Yeah, I presume those are the ones that people created maybe some custom device um, handlers for. To me, a camera is a camera is a camera, but... Yeah. So this is basically similar to Google's efforts, right? They're trying to lock things down. They're trying to understand what people have connected. And, you know, this is a security thing. So people are going to be upset, but... On the flip side, especially because uh, I had mentioned, you know, switching away from the Wink Hub over to SmartThings... I have to say, as I looked at the Samsung booth when I did my tour and just in general researching what products I might want to add to my house, there's not much to complain about when it comes to device support. I mean, the breadth of products that work with smart things is just massive now. It is. And Samsung themselves is building it into TVs and appliances and so on. So, you know, it's gone from just a little product to a a massive ecosystem at this point. Yes. So we'll hear more, hopefully, 
on the Smart Things transition after people have transitioned. We'll try to transition and we'll let you know. All right. Quick acquisition news on the industrial side. Wind River, which for 30 years, more than 30 years, has been making embedded software, has bought a company called Star Lab to add security for Linux-based devices. And this is part of Wind River's big effort to bring the IT into the OT. And Jim Douglas has talked very much about how he's focused on Linux as a growth area for the industrial IoT, as opposed to kind of the traditional real-time operating systems, the RTOSs. So this deal is basically trying to link all of these devices, those running RTOSs, those running Linux, into a very hardened and solid security solution, uh, for lack of a better word, for these systems. And they do that by letting you turn your Linux-based code into something that looks more like an RTOS by making it unchangeable. So even if it's rooted, you can't change it. And also letting you limit the functions associated with it. So Linux is traditionally way more flexible, but they're basically saying, it cannot be that flexible if you want it to be secure. So interesting deal. I did write about it. We'll put a link in the show notes and and worth mentioning because we are going to see a lot more gateway devices running a cluster of sensors and cars and factories in our homes everywhere. So it's worth noting how they might be secured. And speaking of sensors real quick, this is the science news that I just think is really cool. There is a sensor device created by a Dutch company called Plant E and Lacuna Space, which is also based in the Netherlands and the UK. They have this plant-based sensor or a sensor that measures data on plants, but it uses the electrons created by bacteria from the soil and the photosynthesis and all that and sends the data using that energy to low earth orbit satellites. It's plant powered satellites. Plant powered. That's amazing. It is. I agree. I thought it was amazing. (laughs) This is not a lot of data getting sent into space, but I don't care. We don't need a lot of data. We can just be like, boop. At the sound of the tone, (laughs) the time will be. It's about that time. Let us Talk about our voicemail. Dun, 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 dun. This week is a big week. We didn't do a voicemail last week, and we didn't talk about our winner. But first off, we should mention that December's winner is Jeff. Yay, Jeff. We will be reaching out to you, and you will get your selection of Hue Lights. I'm very excited about this. So, Look for our text, Jeff, and hopefully we will find you. This month, we didn't have a prize, but we're going to tell you about it now because I realized I have reviewed the Smart Try, which is a connected device you stick in your dryer, and it tells you when your clothes are dry, and I love it. It's time for me to pass that along to somebody. So if you call us in the month of January and leave us a question that we might answer on the show, you will be entered to win a smart dry. So, yay, it's going to be awesome. And before we go to our question, let me tell you how you call us and get to be entered to win. You will dial 512-623-7424 and leave us a message. It's very easy, 512-623-7424. And now let's go to our question. This week's question is from Derek. Let's hear it. Hi, Stacy and Kevin. This is Derek. I was calling to 
ask a how-to question. I have two row of lights that have independent controls in separate rooms, and they're on switches are on each side of the room. I would like to be able to basically hit up or turn the light switch on twice to turn on all lights in the room, and if I hit it on just once, it will turn on the lights that it would typically control. I know Innovelli has switches that have this capability, but they only offer paddle, and I need to use toggle-style switches to get the approval of my wife. Oh, Derek, (laughs) we're going to disappoint you, and we we didn't want to, but we're going to have to because there's not a way to do this, probably because toggle switches are designed to be on or off. They're binary. They're not flippable. And this is a harsh limit that you're imposing on us. We have found many connected toggle switches, Z-Wave based, and it might be possible to download a device handler for one of them and use something like SmartThings to reprogram it. But that's a big if. We yeah, there's no, there's just no out of the box solution. That's that's simple here. Yeah. So the answer is no. We cannot help you. We can give you toggle switches that are three way that will work. You know, in that situation, like they can turn your light light bulbs on and off, and they are smart and they can be programmed to do like one thing. <laughs> right. But they can work across multiple circuits, which is both sets of lights in your case. Yes. You could program them with an on to do that, but you can't program right. them two ways. To just, yeah, exactly. So that is your limit there. But if you are willing to convince your wife to go paddle, and I know that's a big if, we could do a lot. <laughs> yeah. On the paddle front, we have Wemo has a couple devices. They have a dimmer switch, and they also have a new switch that they showed off at CES that gives you options like a long press that can be programmed to do something, and also the taps, etc. Right. Yeah. The Wemo stage uh, that just debuted, it's that has three buttons. It kind of looks like a paddle, but it's really a remote that sits in a paddle-like case that's installed in your wall or a plate. You have six different options there with the three buttons, double presses and single presses. So those are optional. And we can tell you that there are many paddles that will answer your needs. The Innovelli that he mentioned would do the trick right off the bat. Right. That's but they're paddles. So yeah. we went through CES. We actually went through Jasco's booth. We see by GE. We, <laughs> we went lots of places looking for toggles for you. There is nothing. Another option is like a smart button that you put somewhere in your room that you program to do this. That is another option, like a Z-Wave button or something like that. I know that you're not going to love this. If anyone out there can think of a way to do this, let us know. We're kind of... We're stymied. We're stymied. We did see that Insteon, if you have an Insteon switch and an Insteon hub, there's an Insteon dimmer switch that looks like it might be able to be programmed to have your dimming function, which is a hold and press, you might be able to program something there, but it's a little unclear. And I don't have an Insteon hub and switch to try it. Right. So if someone right. has that, and I know there are Insteon lovers out there because y'all, y'all email us all the time, feel free to let us know if you can take the Insteon dimmer switch and program it. And the only other thing option I can think of is actually adding a whole nother switch, 
one that controls both lights. And that doesn't solve the problem because now you have one switch for one set of lights, one switch for the other set of lights, and one switch that does both lights. The key there would be to find a switch that is actually just a switch on a switch plate that's smart. You can't wire that into your wall because... Correct. And I could not find a toggle switch that was a like a radio controlled, like a Bluetooth or a Z-Wave switch plate. Lutron makes them. A couple other companies make them. But so those are, Derek, we can't help you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. Just tell your wife they don't make toggle switches anymore. Yeah, just, just hey, <laughs> we, we talked about some pretty light switches. You can buy some lovely paddles and they're relatively inexpensive. Just replace them all throughout your house and then you can start playing with the smart home. Yay. That was our bad news for you. So. Moving right along, y'all remember, call us and you'll be entered to win a smart try. And that concludes the news portion of this week's show. And stay tuned for a message from our sponsor and for our guest. That's right. Multiple guests this week talking about the connected home over IP standard. All this is coming up next. Hey, everyone, we are taking a quick break from the Internet of Things podcast for a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Machine Q, a Comcast service. I have Hannah Schneider, who is with Machine Q, here to talk to me. Hi, Hannah. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? Excellent. So to kick it off, remind us, what is Machine Q? Machine Q is a Comcast service which helps enterprises connect their operations through our portfolio of low-power IoT connectivity, as well as devices, gateways, and management software. We offer two primary products today, the first of which is our infrastructure product, and that includes our LoRaWAN gateways, APIs, and our flagship device and gateway management experience, MQ Central, as well as our platform product, which includes a suite of sensing devices that can include everything from temperature, leak detection, vibration, and more, all of which can be layered on our infrastructure product. Awesome. All right. So we previously talked about MachineQ's product focus. Can you talk to me a little bit about an enterprise using your infrastructure today? Definitely. Yeah. We'd love to highlight how we're working with the Fortune 500 automotive manufacturer that is using our infrastructure product. In this case, this company is looking to develop an internal solution to gain efficiencies in manufacturing and production line management while also exploring possible smart parking solutions. And because they operate enormous facilities up to a million plus square feet, They've also expressed interest in an indoor asset tracking solution to keep track of valuable equipment they often misplace or lose. To help solve all of these problems, this customers deployed our low-power IoT gateways and our core platform, which is designed to work at scale, processing millions of packets securely and reliably. Using our professional services team, this customer was able to stand up a stable, enterprise-grade, dedicated IoT network in less than a day. Our infrastructure is empowering them to drive innovation throughout their business as they continue to think through new use cases. Whoa, all that in less than a day. So why did this customer choose MachineQ? Yeah, prior to working with MachineQ, they had experimented with several other IoT providers, all of which specialized in one aspect of the IoT stack. So either working just with connectivity, just gateways, just devices, and they were really having trouble finding a partner who could address all of their needs while still helping them execute upon their plan. MachineQ was able to work with that customer to offer an integrated experience across devices, gateways, and easy-to-use management software, which empowered them to achieve their business goals. That is really amazing. So where can our listeners learn more about MachineQ? Listeners can learn more at MachineQ.com slash Stacey. That's MachineQ.com slash S-T-A-C-E-Y. (laughs) 
All right. Welcome to the guest section of the podcast. While I was at CES, I spoke to attendees about CHIP, the connected home over IP standard effort that Amazon, Apple, and Google had announced in mid-December. This standard will work with Wi-Fi, Bluetooth low energy, and thread radios, and it's really designed to function at the application layer, defining devices through a schema that says what a device is and what it can and can't do. So a light bulb would have its own schema that would say, hey, I can turn on, I can turn off, I have the ability to dim or have colors. All of that is unified, so anybody can build a light bulb that will work with devices from any other company. Chip, as it says in the name, is IP-based. And I interviewed Lee Ratliff, a senior analyst with IHS Market, who explains why he thinks chip is a positive development in what each player is likely to bring to the standard and why the IP aspect matters so much. So what was your reaction to the chip news? So my initial reaction was pessimistic just because uh, I thought it was a new connectivity standard. And I thought the last thing we need is a new connectivity standard, especially when what they wanted out of it sounded like thread and other standards, Wi-Fi, others to support IP. Once I started looking into it, though, I realized it was it was really all happening at the application level using existing connectivity standards like Thread, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, and others. So as a result, I'm actually a lot very optimistic because three of the biggest uh, industry leaders have come together to work out some of these issues and working together and creating this this new standard at the application level to make things work together. So I think it's a very positive announcement. You know, these things don't always bear fruit. Things could go wrong. But I think the industry leaders recognize that they need to work together to uh, improve the smart home. What attributes do you think the big companies that are working together, so Apple, Amazon, and Google, what do you think they'll each bring to the chip equation? So I think they'll they'll each come at it from their own perspective. And I think they're going to each want different things out of it. And that could make it hard for them to work together. For instance, Apple will be keen on security, as they have been with HomeKit. And I think they'll want to bring a lot of that to, to the party. I think that'll be a welcome addition. I'm sure everybody recognizes the need for security, at least among that group. And then the need for IP, this, this really underscores to me that the industry movers are really looking to IP. That's That hasn't been clear over the past few years, especially since Thread has kind of languished. Thread was the solution to native IP in the smart home and up until now hasn't got a lot of traction. And so that made me question the need for IP in the home. But this now reaffirms really the industry leaders believe that IP is the right solution. What does IP give to the smart home when we're talking about a big picture? So IP, there's a lot of really attractive things about IP. For one thing, it brings a lot of economies of scale with it and a lot of software and developers and all sorts of things that are that exist already in the industry. Applications written for IP, connectivity standards that understand IP, security, all kinds of things written for IP. So it's going to bring all of that. These companies in particular, uh, none of them were really smart home pioneers. They all came to it later after having conquered the mobile and IT space. And IP was one of the tools that they used to conquer the mobile and IT space. So they're very comfortable with IP and they want it to mate with their previous ecosystems, particularly with Apple and Google, their mobile ecosystems. And so IP helps do that. Now, IP does have some downsides in the smart home. Uh, There's an awful lot of overhead to IP. So if all you're wanting to send is a few bytes to indicate a temperature, 
uh, you might actually s- be, end up sending hundreds of bytes, which is difficult for constrained devices that really need to be uh, low power and, and operating for a short amount of time. So that's going to be a challenge. There's, you know, Thread uses some constrained IP protocols that reduce that overhead. Still, it's not, it's probably not as efficient as some of the original smart home protocols, Zigbee and Z-Wave and some of the others. But I think those handful of negatives are far outweighed by the positives. Awesome. Thank you. The chip standard will be run by the Zigbee Alliance, which already runs the Zigbee Smart Home standard. So I also spoke with Tobin Richardson, the CEO of the Zigbee Alliance, and Chris Lepris, a solutions architect at the Zigbee Alliance, on how to build a standard that lives within device constraints. Okay, so we've been talking a lot about chip. And what I really want to know, given that there's already efforts out there by the OCF and Amazon and Google to have their own, can't remember what they're called, skills, recipes, whatever you want to call them. How many schemas do we need to change a light bulb? How is that all going to work together? You really only need one. You need chip, uh, but you need it all to have great insight from a lot of different companies and the experience that they've had with the products in the field. And so bringing everybody together in CHIP is going to achieve that. We'll also have great relationships with other organizations like OCF, and there'll be an opportunity to bring a lot of these into one uh, together. And realistically, if we do this standard, what are some of the overhead requirements that you guys are looking for? And how will you make it so a light bulb doesn't need an A-class processor from ARM, for example? Well, we haven't yet decided on the actual size limits, um, but we know we're going to follow a model that's similar to OpenThread, where they have selected components from the major players, Nordic, Silicon Labs, TI, that are sort of pre-selected for the right size that we don't want to go over. And so as we're doing this open source project, every night we'll do a continuous integration build and make sure we don't go over those size limits. So that'll be part of the selection process for a check-in to be successful, that it doesn't blow the size limits out of the water. And given that the Zigbee Alliance now has Zigbee, it has Thread and Chip, how long do you guys change your name? Something that we're looking at. <laughs> um, it is important that the industry understands that we're a multi-technology organization. So everything that we do and say about ourselves should reflect that. Uh, Zigbee has a great history and a great, great application and implementation in the, in the field, and we don't want to lose that. Uh, so we want to find a way to respect that as well as make sure that we're positioned for the growth of chip. So you're telling me that Zigbee is still going to be relevant in a chip world? Yes. How will those things work together? Chip will be done later on this year. Uh, Zigbee deployments will continue. We have a lot of companies that are bringing out new products, and there will be a lot of different ways that you can think about how those kind of interact together. You'll end up having this final kind of interaction and interoperability through Chip, uh, but you have uh, a lot of good products uh, out in the market and great experiences, and we don't want to take those away from developers, consumers, or uh, companies that want to build products today. The potential of a new standard raises questions for other standards efforts out there, including Z-Wave, which is an alternative radio for the smart home. Two days after the chip announcement, Z-Wave went open source. I spoke with Matt Johnson, who is the Senior Vice President and General Manager of IoT at Silicon Labs, who shares his take on chip and, as the company that's behind the Z-Wave standard, talks about what happens to Z-Wave as chip gains ground. Okay, so Matt, what are your thoughts on the new connected home over IP standard? So as a company that's been focused on the IoT space for over a decade now, this is honestly one of the most exciting developments we've seen in a long time. All of us have been working really hard in this market, 
and we've seen amazing progress in the smart home over the last few years. But this is one of those events that really could have a huge impact on the next decade. And the reason for that is we've seen industry players recognizing the need to come together. We've seen industry players recognizing the need for alignment, maybe not at the wireless protocol level, but at the application level. And we've seen the desire for them to work together. And all of us doing that is going to do something that we haven't been able to do, which is accelerate the ability to connect things. And this is the start of that, which I think is incredibly exciting for all of us in the IoT space. All right. I am also really excited about it. Uh, Silicon Labs is in a really interesting position. You guys make wireless radios for just about everything. You've got Bluetooth, Wi-Fi now on the low power side, Zigbee, Z-Wave, and all the proprietary things that we all go grrr about. And my big question for you is around Z-Wave, which the Z-Wave Alliance, probably two days after the standard was announced, suddenly said, hey, we're open sourcing Z-Wave. So is Z-Wave still going to be relevant? Yeah. So it's a great question because we've gotten a lot of, well, why that timing? It seems you know very interesting that right after one, we had the other. And the truthful answer is we had been working on this for a long time. But when this announcement got pulled in for Connected Home, we pulled in the announcement for Open Z-Wave. And the reason is we didn't want it to look like it was directly reactional. If you look at who we are as a company, we're in the middle of all these things. So we obviously knew both were coming. So we tried to align them as much as possible, but didn't want to put them on the same day. So that's the logic of why we did that. Another question would be, well, what does this mean for Z-Wave? How is Z-Wave going to do in all this? And one thing that's important to step back and look at this whole time, everyone loves to see a fight or a battle and say, well, which standard, which protocol is going to win? That's not what's going on here. Even if you look at the connected home that was just announced, that's taking multiple wireless protocols like BLE, like Wi-Fi, 15.04, and putting an app layer on top of them. What we're looking at with Z-Wave is one, it's been fantastic having it closed to get it to where it's at now. We actually had the best year ever in Z-Wave last year. But we believe if we're going to keep growing it, taking it to the next level and actually helping the industry, a closed standard is not the right thing to do. Opening it up is what ultimately makes things successful. So under that umbrella, we're opening it up. And the battle here is not or which one wins, it's and. And with over 3,000 devices already out there, We want to open it up so it can continue to grow as part of this with everything else. And Z-Wave has the local component, the device-to-device connectivity. When you start bringing in IP standards, we start going out to the broader internet. Things can break. So I'm going to assume that there's that's kind of part of the role that it will play. So Z-Wave's role, as you know well, has been very successful, especially in areas like security and door locks in these areas. And we don't expect that to change. But one thing we do see changing is increasingly, we work with tens of thousands of customers in the IoT space. And what they want is the and. I want to have a solution that supports Zigbee and OpenThread and Z-Wave. And we're literally one of the only companies in the world that has the technology to put these together and give a customer a solution. So an easy way to think about it is if you're an end device supplier, and you want to provide a solution, and you want to tell your customers it's just going to work. You need to support multiple protocols, and you need to bring it all together for them. So that's where we see tremendous value. One, on one end, the industry coming together saying application level, we're going to start pulling this together. 
On the other end, we can provide a solution that we can tell customers it's going to work with all of it. So you can tell your customers with confidence, you buy this one device off the shelf, it's going to work with whatever's out there. How long do you think it will take to have a standard for chip? So right now, we've just announced it. We've got a lot of work to do in the first half of 2020 to pull this all together. So we're not publishing those dates, as you know. Z-Wave isn't the only standard for the IoT that will be affected. The Open Connectivity Foundation is a direct competitor to what CHIP is trying to do. It has built schemas for smart devices, and it's hoping to see companies release Open Connectivity Foundation-capable products in 2020. The OCF showed off some demos at CES in an event, but mostly they were pretty bland. They focused on bringing cloud support for OCF devices couple smart mirrors. I do know that the head of the OCF and the Zigbee Alliance are talking, so perhaps we're going to see the schemas overlap. Why would we want to reinvent a schema for every other device out there? So I spoke with Scott Harkins, who is vice president of Connected Home at Residio, which manages the Honeywell brand, and he explains why Residio is backing Chip, but why he's also not giving up on the OCF or any of the other standards that Residio is involved in. You guys have recently joined the Zigbee board, have come out pretty strongly in this, and yet you are also participating in OCF and have for a while. How do you think those two standards can evolve together or separately? Yeah, the standardization, so our participation with OCF is more around the cloud-to-cloud standardization. Uh, We have about 5,000 third-party companies that consume our API today. And it's a ton of work to maintain it. It's a ton of work to work with them all the time. We think standardization there ends up being good for for us to be more efficient. We think it makes our installers, our professional contractor customers, makes their jobs a bit easier. We think ultimately it makes the consumer happier in their experience as well. So we view OCF as a cloud-to-cloud standard, and we view CHIP as more of a proximal network, a device-to-device standard. Uh, so we think the two of them can coexist. But by the way, we're involved in a few other standards around the world. So there's not just one. We hope there would be one day, but we use some other technologies as well as for standardization because we're not really sure how the end game plays and feel like we have to put chips on more than one bet. True. And I still don't have my jetpack. So who knows how this will turn out? All right. And the idea of a device to device standard chip IP is in the name, which makes me feel like it could go to the cloud and beyond. So is that not an area of focus for y'all at this moment? Uh, well, we, it's, listen, it's very early, so we'll we'll stay really close to it and we'll be flexible and adapt to it. What we want is a solution that, again, is easy for us to implement, is easy for our pros to install, and makes a consumer smart home a bit simpler. I think we all want that. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Scott. All right. Thanks. And finally, I ran into Brian Van Harlingen, the CTO of Belkin International, which makes the Wemo product, Linksys products, and more. And he talked about Chip could help his company and whether or not he thinks it's actually going to happen. What does Belkin think about Chip? Oh, we're really excited about the announcement. We're looking forward to more consolidation and interoperability between smart home devices. You know, we've been in the industry for a long time, and we've been a long-term partner of all three of those companies. We're looking forward to working closely with them to bring the new standard to market. Would it make your life easier as a developer of having to work with all of these companies? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. As I mentioned, we've worked with all of them. Working with them individually, it'll be very nice if we can work with them all collectively. Do you think it's really going to happen? 
Yeah, I'm, we're very optimistic about the potential for this. We've seen some of the output of them working together, particularly on Thread, and, and we think it's got some real momentum. Awesome. That's it for now on the chip front, but we'll check back when we start seeing momentum from different partners and hopefully later this year in what I think is going to be the third quarter, we'll actually see something demonstrable. So stay tuned for all of that. And thanks for listening. That's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, if you'd like more IoT news, sign up for my newsletter at stacyoniot.com. We'll see you next week. Thank you.